0: Hey everybody, I know most of you out there like making money. I can hear the fingers rubbing together right now. But here's a really cool opportunity I wanted to share with you guys, and that's driving with Uber. Now, Uber is that popular smartphone app that connects riders with drivers. So, you know, as for me, I take Uber a bunch. I take it to work. I take it to the studio. I take it to pick up kids. I take it on date night. Um, But most of the times I'm in an Uber, I have an amazing conversation with a lot of the drivers that are there. They're always interesting people from all around the world. Um, Some things I've learned just in having conversation is that they love being their own boss boss, it's a great way to be an entrepreneur. Um, If you're a student, it's a great way to go to school, have a part-time job, use your own vehicle, make some money. Um, Even if you're a parent, it's a great way to get around. And in between taking kids to school and to camp and to soccer practice, uh, you could always find some time to make some extra cash. So you've got a car and a license. Put them both to work for you today and start earning serious life-changing money. Sign up to drive with Uber by visiting drivewithuber.com that's drive with U-B-E-R.com, drivewithuber.com and tell them innovation crush sent you hey Welcome everybody to another installment of Innovation Crush uh, My name is Chris Denson, in case you didn't know that, I hope you do um, Unless you are listening for, to us for the first time And if so, um, you should know that this show covers all things Marketing, innovation, ideas, creativity um, A lot of guests who are inventing and reinventing the way we do things So um, uh, today, we have a doctor you're, you're, you're the second doctor on the show, by the way
1: Honored, honored, honored
0: Dr. Erwin Adam I will, I'm going to spare you the Edelnut part, yes, sir. Um, even though I just kind of actually didn't. Uh, welcome. Thanks for, for coming in. Um, let's start w- with some easy stuff. Give me a 101 on who Erwin Adam is. What do you want people to know so far?
1: Yeah. So basically, I run a food design technology studio up in Canada, uh, but I approach food from a really unique perspective because my background is in technology. Um You know, I I did a PhD in biomedical engineering. I'm a chemical engineer, uh, but I've always worked in food uh, as a parallel to that. And my family has always been in design. So it's kind of like exactly what I do is who I am
0: you're just like forged in this perfect stew of Innovation and, and where does where does the food part come in though is your family like you, you talk about your family being designers like- So
1: the food part comes in well, like most families or many families food has always been central to everything But really I started working in food when I was 15 uh, And never stopped so that kind of continued through when I was in college and continued through uh, when I was in grad school and the projects I used to do, I started doing, like, just personal projects and food that started growing and growing in terms of complexity and craziness.
0: Well, when you say project, like, because, you know, I, if, when you say 15s, you started working in food, was it, like, or you had McDonald's, flipping burgers, or were you, like... It was never it, that were bad. You start- it, was it was never was that just- <laughs> bad. Uh,
1: it was never, like, I, I never had to go that low. Okay, yeah. But like, definitely I did some time on the line. Uh, you know, like, I started kind of a dish pit scenario at 15, and it was just a summer job. Right. Uh. But then I got pulled up onto the line and started working in more and more kind of involved restaurant environments. And it was amazing because, like, I loved how you could really be creative and do amazing things in food uh, that I had never experienced myself.
0: What was what was one of your earliest, like, memories that kind of started doing it for you that gave you the So goosebumps?
1: I grew up in the prairies, so in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Since the beard? The beard, it just happened because I've been on the road for the last two months, (laughs) Uh, so that's unrelated. But uh, yeah, so imagine growing up somewhere where you're seven hours from anywhere, and that anywhere is Minneapolis. So you're really in the middle of nowhere. And I remember at 16, uh, rolling sushi for the first time, and I thought it was the most amazing process. It was Unbelievable to actually be creating real art, like what seemed to be real art. Uh, But at the same time, I hated eating sushi at the time. (laughs) So it it was interesting. It was like a really. I don't know. It gave kind of a lens to the rest of the world. Yeah, when I lived in a place that didn't really have access.
0: That's. I mean, it's a. It's an interesting beginning. Even the, even the fact that at at sixteen you looked at at food as art, which you know most sixteen year olds is like I'm hungry, <laughs> right? Um, where like I don't know. Where do you think that perspective c- came from? Right? Was it?
1: Again, I grew up in a a family that really respected design. Like, my mother's a designer, Um, and I think that just has always been in our environment. Um, I was the kid that would go away for a weekend and then come home, and all the rooms were rearranged, and the whole house was completely rebuilt, you know? So I was used to change. I was used to keeping an eye towards aesthetics um, and really learning history behind art as well and design. Nice. And so there's a lot of appreciation for that. And so I think when I started finding that in food, it just continued.
0: So now uh, there's a food studio, right? Um, I'm gonna re- I'm gonna read from my notes. That's how that's how prepared I am. So you know, um, we are redefining food and beverage futures through creative engagement, cultural scanning, content generation, technology development, food design, and edible imagination.
1: It that covers a lot of fields. <laughs> uh, so it's amazing. So the evolution of the studio has really been organic. Um, I'm very fortunate where I have built out a team of amazing people who I can go to every time I wake up with a new idea. Uh, So the team is made up of architects, designers, a chemist, chef. I have a social worker on my team, a photographer. Uh, So it's really this broad mix of folks who all bring their own perspectives and lenses to questions in food. So I really push the team to explore food experience, interaction and engagement um, and allow them the ability and the latitude to pull the resources they need from one another to really create new things. Yeah. And so we do a lot of conceptual work, too. So, you know, we'll do kind of our classic brand work and whatnot, uh, but we do a lot of conceptual work. We'll ask questions around tasting data. You know, what does it mean to engage my senses or particularly my sense of taste to quantify the world around me? Right. So, like us as individuals, we're inundated with a lot of big data. Yeah. Right. So, we have all these visualization strategies. There's a lot of ways that we try to digest that data. But, why don't we use? our taste and flavor sensing systems to understand that information. To literally digest the data. To literally digest the data. I I dropped that one for you. I know. I was going to leave it alone at first. I'm being generous today. I'm being generous. But really, and so, you know, we have this olfactory sensing system or our sense of smell, let's say, uh, that can differentiate ten to 20,000 different flavors. You know, we're highly evolved to do this, but we don't use it for anything quantified right? Uh, so our question really was what does that look like you know how green is our taste and our smell in order to quantify the world around us and so we started with a prototype uh, this is already going back to closer to the beginning a couple of years ago um, when everything was just a project but that allowed us to create a system that would call sentiments from Twitter and then define those sentiments by different flavors or tastes so sweet salty bitter right whatnot and we would associate different beverages with them and then you would tweet at this machine that then would pour you a beverage on demand that was in proportion to the current state of sentiment uh, in Twitter um, the, the,
0: uh, the I guess the the beginning of that particular project and probably a lot of your projects is asking some sort of weird question right It's like if you if you say what does it like who in on your team was like what does data taste like like where and, and where does that perspective come from within the team or was it just kind of like
1: there's a lot of c- inherent curiosity so that was back in the day where there was really... Not much of a team. That was a, We had an intern from Brazil. Uh, he was a computer scientist and needed a project. Um, and we actually were expecting to get a mechanical engineer. And instead, we got a computer scientist. So we had to come up with a project on the fly. And that's really what came out. Hmm. Um, and certainly, there's a lot of referencing that happens as well. There's a lot of work out there that might be very esoteric, right. um, very scientific, or very academic, or very niche that we reference when we work on projects. And a lot of the, the ethos of our work is really the democratization of these ideas. You know, so whether it's the democratization of food that you might have in a three-star Michelin restaurant or the democratization of like, some very esoteric uh, paper right. uh, written by a scientist who tried to communicate some concept between taste and knowledge. right? We try to take those and actually translate them to things that people understand. And tangible things. So not we're not talking about white papers and talking about literature. We're talking By the way, about I've,
0: I've, I've looked you up. I've, I've read some titles of your white papers and and publications you've put out. And I was like, what?
1: Well, uh, so those are probably from the research days. Virtual micro wells
0: for digital microfluidics. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I don't know what to ask this guy. <laughs> so
1: it's probably one of the most useful things that I did in my PhD, uh, though not the most, I'd say, lauded piece of my PhD. But, yeah, that comes from uh, – my days back, really trying to create technologies that could improve our state of healthcare, care. And so that was a focus on personalized medicine and really looking at how we can take something the size of a laboratory. So it's something that might cost millions, if not tens of millions of right. dollars, and how we can reduce that to the size of something that fits on a microchip. So there's a whole field of researchers out there doing amazing work in this area, and that's called microfluidics or lab on chip technology. Very literal lab on a chip. And I was really fortunate where I got to work in a laboratory at University of Toronto uh, with a a, a very uh, leading expert in the field, uh, Dr. Aaron Wheeler, who really was pushing this area of microfluidics, but he had his own technology, which was called digital microfluidics, where we would use electric fields to move tiny droplets of liquid. Uh, And it was amazing. So essentially the idea would be, you know, imagine you were to come to – the physician's office and he would take a skin sample right and then turn your skin into each of the tissues from your body and then be able to screen drugs against those tissues and do that for let's say under a hundred dollars right and do that on something the size of a microchip or a- now how, lo-
0: how long ago were you working on that particular project
1: uh, or so that, I, I just left academia last April. So oh yeah, wow! Okay. Yeah, so April 2014 was when I jumped ship and I went full time on developing out my studio.
0: Yeah, because I, I mean, you know, I, I've been sort of obsessing a little bit or paying a lot more attention to sort of this personalized healthcare. These, you know, instead of you know one to many kind of solutions mm-hmm. of medication or scientific applications to healthcare, it's like these one to one, like being able to 3D print something specifically for you, an organ or a piece of tissue or different things like that or even um, Theranos I don't know if you've heard of this it's like a, it's like a small about the size of a like a, one of those capsule pills mm-hmm. um, and you can get a drop of blood in there and it's like wor- that, that scientific value is worth those six vials of blood that the doctor will take from you and that's something you can do at home right so that's one of those things coming out later this year so it's interesting like you know you've come from this place of science and health and, like, a broader issue and bring it down to sort of these food science experiences?
1: Well, so a big piece of the work that I do has to – it it reflects, I guess, my personal interests and my shifts in the way that I perceive the academic environment. So that, for me, was a big step, was leaving academia um, because of a lot of the pressures I felt exist in – Academic environments to change, you know. I don't believe that they're fully sustainable the way they exist today. Um, and I, I think I had a fortunate position where I had done quite well in academia, and there were certainly opportunities there. But I really did see a bigger opportunity to do my own research outside of academia. And so that was really when I pulled the trigger on launching the studio full on. Uh, you know, in one year, I've gone from three people to sixteen people. Wow. Um, and that's something that I would not have been able to do in academia. Uh, it would have taken me much longer. I would have been much more focused on getting my tenure and like doing a lot of bureaucratic right. and administrative work that would just detract from probably my most creative and available years of my life. Well, when, did,
0: well, like, when did that become a thing right because you know i think we all go from this like i'm doing what i have to do and then there's that one thing i really want to do <laughs> and and also you you mentioned personalization and that's kind of like finding your for me it's it's like finding your own voice within your experiences, right? You, you spend—we uh, all spend a, a certain number of years or amount of time at, with, with a job, mm-hmm. which we like. But then there's like that one thing that we're trying to figure out how to bridge the gap, or if there's a real opportunity to do that. What was that process and that transition like for you? Was it uncomfortable? Was it great? <laughs> or,
1: you know, it, it was tough. It was certainly tough. So I was very fortunate, though, at the same time as it was very organic. You know, everything had started as a project while I was doing my PhD research. Um, So I was navigating kind of these two worlds because these projects became more and more involved. You know, we started picking up more and more client work. Um, I was being kind of dragged into the agency world. Meanwhile, during the day, I was pipetting in a laboratory, you know, or like looking into a microscope. Um, And then those projects were kind of ongoing. And at one point I went down to Boston. I was in Cambridge at Harvard for a, a good part of my research. And I was very fortunate where I happened to be in a lab that the postdoc I was working with was launching a science and food program at Harvard. And so that was very inspiring, too, because she um, definitely opened my eyes to, hey, like, there is an opportunity for us to do things outside the laboratory. So Dr. Amy Rowad is actually here at UCLA. Mm. um, And she's an amazing mind who's thinking about these things in food and science. And definitely that. Kind of, I think started that trend for me that hey, you could actually do something a little bit different, and that just grew and grew. So then after I was in Boston, I was in Paris for a while uh, at Ecole Normale Supérieure, which was like also a very, uh, you know, paradigm shifting experience that opened my eyes to hey, you can do things that lie outside of your expected course. Uh, And then I came back to Toronto and started you know putting things out there and just as we started putting things out there we found they resonated with people and the very first real public project very public project was this two week pop-up called Bev Lab and it was a beverage laboratory we popped up uh, on Queen West in Toronto so for anyone who knows that street it's kind of like the place in Toronto there's a lot of foot traffic there it's a cool neighborhood that's been changing quite a bit Um, and it was amazing people would just walk in they're like what's going on here and we were like we don't know you know, we don't know what's going on here. We decided to open a studio right. that looks at beverage future uh, on the street, and then people just started telling us they wanted workshops. Is,
0: is, is that a, is that a scalable business model, right? Because I think a lot of times we have ideas and we're like. And there's, there's theories about like launching something like one guest quoted, like I would rather launch something that's 80% ready than wait for it to be a hundred percent. And it never is right. So you, you're saying you launched the Bev lab and kind of like, ah, we kind of have a vision for what it should be. Oh, there
1: was no vision for it. For me, (laughs) I believe that you learn in real life. So, and in real time. So my philosophy is really, you know, proto quick, learn quick. And and a lot of people are like, oh, you know, launch early, fail fast, whatever. But I think you learn so much as you go along and you can't be at least in a field such as my own where everything is new, everything is green, it's blue skies. Um, You can't be so arrogant as to say, this is what it's gonna look like, this is what it is. You can certainly set your vision, but when you start bringing in the public and you start bringing in experts to start exploring with you, you learn in real time and you're able to quickly Well,
0: it's like, it's like fluidity is the new norm, right? Where, you know, rigidity was the way America Absolutely. was built. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, we do this, this is the work day, this is, you know, why we have an almanac and uh, why daylight savings time exists and like all these this systemized way of making things where you know, where I feel like we're in this era of experimentation. Right it, where, where it's you know two stodgy old companies deciding to work together and do something together like and that's never before mm-hmm. been done um or you know working a lot with startups and big brands and and things like that um you, you mentioned earlier client work. Right, so what does who who would be a client, and what are they asking you to do?
1: Yeah, sure. So we work with kind of I'd say three different areas of clients, so we work with a lot of large food and beverage clients. Uh, we work with hospitality groups and then we work with emerging food concepts um, you know, so a, a very one of our our bigger clients is uh, PepsiCo, so we work with PepsiCo in a number of different capacities.
0: Pepsi Clear, did you? Was that you? Pepsi Clear? That Ooh. was
1: that was not me. Okay, I, I cannot take any credit for Pepsi <laughs> Clear, but uh, and and I had no affiliation with the recent campaign to bring back Pepsi Clear. Um, that was not me, but uh, you know, with them we get a lot of opportunities to explore how to engage um, the public at large. So whether it's actually looking at product or it's looking at more activation spheres and starting to understand how we can um, create interesting experiences that both contribute to the public at large, but also obviously help build brand and brand recognition uh, and consumer understanding about products that are are launching. So there's certainly a business side to that. Um, But where we've been very uh, privileged in working with PepsiCo is that They've really given us a lot of freedom to do um, cool and interesting work right. that often just wouldn't be possible in another place because either the, the funding wouldn't be there or the ability to take risks wouldn't be there.
0: Now, do you find that you go out and you, like, I don't know, from a biz dev perspective, like, are you going out and, like, pitching or, like, people coming to you? Because I get, I get a Pepsi, right, where it's a, an endemic brand, but does, I don't know, does, like, a Dodge come to you and go, like kind of ask the same question that you asked earlier like what does the driving experience taste like or what, is it, what does this ex- exist yeah, like so that's
1: this? definitely an area that I'm looking to push what we do you, you know you have people who are thinking about uh, the sonic environment you have people that are thinking about the visual environment and I realize there certainly is an opportunity in the taste environment you know, right. how can we become the experts of the taste and flavor environment uh, and right what does your brand taste like that's a very legitimate question and I would love for people to come knock on my door <laughs> with that question but um, what does Innovation Crush taste like so far? Uh, do, you, do you actually want to know what it tastes like? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I drove a long time to get here, but LA is very big, so uh, yeah. Big. I, I've been learning that uh, Uber is my friend. Uber
0: is yes, uh, the, uh, especially yes. Yeah, Though I here. just
1: got an earful, a thirty-minute earful on how Uber is not friends with the people driving, but that's a, a different discussion. <laughs> um, but they're yeah. one
0: of our sponsors, by the way. Just God, no, I'm God, kidding on it. <laughs> <laughs> but.
1: Uh, You know, definitely, that's an area we like to explore. Um, But those people haven't been coming to our doors yet. You know, where we're getting a lot of, I call them pings from, is certainly from the food and beverage environment. That's like an obvious one. Uh, Definitely the hospitality uh, area, you know, whether it's large resorts, cruise lines. um, They're coming to us saying, how can you create unique experiences for our guests? You know, we want unique, memorable experiences. Everything's kind of been done what can we do different, you know? Do you have a a favorite project? A favorite project? I love our internal projects. Like our internal projects are the best where we get to do our conceptual work and our our pushing it type work. Uh, One of them right now is about creating utensils that make us taste things that aren't there. So what does it look like to have a spoon that makes me taste something uh, sweet without having sugar? What does it look like to have a fork that makes me taste salt without having salt? Uh, That's one that... I love uh, because it, it really is this merger of the, the, the food design and technology. Right. Uh, and that's a space where I can see my whole team rallying around a, a single project. Uh, we have another more conceptual project, too, that uh, is imbued with a theme that I've been pushing in studio. So this year, the, the theme I've been really pushing is around choreography and understanding movement and how the human Body interacts with its environment uh, in order to experience it and so we do a lot of movement work in the studio and so people sometimes think it's weird but I think the it sounds to, weird the only way to learn it <laughs> but, 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 but cool, you, right? you have to live it to learn it right well there's,
0: there's this thing there was a, a, a really interesting infographic I like and it's a small circle and in the center of it it says your comfort zone and then there's another big circle next to it and totally not connected it's like where the magic happens is in this big circle and it is is getting teams outside of their comfort zone, and especially when you assemble a team, right, of all these different disciplines, I think you've you you kind of built that or you built that experience in organically, right? Like, I, I'm curious as to what a social worker, you know, <laughs> perspective is on your team, and like why. You know, what was the thought behind bringing that sort of discipline on, on board?
1: So, uh, you know, some of my team, actually particularly two members of the team, came through because we ran a six-month pop-up bar and cafe. Um, and so our photographer... <clears throat> And the social worker come from working in that cafe. Uh, the social worker was working on her uh, master's degree at the time, so she was just looking. It's for like the smartest job. bunch of people ever. Like, oh, they're amazing. <laughs> and the photographer was she was doing her thing, and she's also, uh, you know, she looks to do work in film and theater and whatnot. Anyway, so they just happened to be working and as they started seeing what we were actually doing, they were like, well, how can I get more involved? Uh, the social worker got more involved through uh, a high school program that I started up called FEED, which is Food Education Entrepreneurship and Development, where it basically brought uh, high school kids in from a priority school in Toronto – Um, It's a
0: priority school. I don't
1: know if we have those here. Well, it's a euphemism (laughs) for... Yeah, it's a euphemism for an at-risk population. But to be honest, like, these kids are awesome. Like, they are so driven, so motivated. They inspire me. Uh, So maybe the program was self-selecting in that sense. But... uh, yeah, these kids came in. I ran a bunch of food immersions with them for a couple months last summer, and then they did internships throughout the year, and now they're running their own food business this summer. Uh, they opened a shop right in front of Union Station, which is a big train station in Toronto for the summer for two months. And so the social worker has been working very closely with the kids in order to really help push the program. And she also happens to be an expert baker. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how these people find me. Multi-hyphenates. You know what? And again, I tell you, I'm so lucky to have the team that I have. It's self-selecting. The people that find me, they get it. Yeah. You know, And same with my clients too. My clients are self-selecting. If you're going to work with me, there's already something wrong with you, right? Um, <laughs> it means you're able to actually think outside the yeah. scope of what you would typically be doing. You know, we're not just going to put up a bunch of like little displays and start hawking your samples. Like that's not really what we do. Totally. Um, and so it's amazing to work with a team and then also with clients that both understand that.
0: No, that's that's, that's great. Um, uh, I was going to ask you, what does Drake mean when he says he's running through the six with his woes?
1: He <laughs> means everything. He means everything. I'm like, is that some really weird? It means to- everything. Man. Toronto euphemism. You know what? The six is where it's at right now. <laughs> it really is. The six is where it's at. I you know, I get asked this question often, like, why do you keep your studio in Toronto? I'm just like, it's good. It's too it's good. I just
0: like, I, I like I love what he says and I'm like well, uh, but I have no idea what he's talking about. So I could be like a chanting something towards Satan. I, I don't know. If, I don't know. <laughs> Satan's in it, Toronto it, or it not. It's just
1: the 6, the 416. So sorry, we're the 416. I don't know if you know. Oh, that. okay. Yeah, yeah, so our Eric. The 6, is, he yeah. abbreviated. Yeah, 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 cuz down to 1. Three numbers. <laughs> three numbers. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> too much for a for a rap verse. Yeah yeah, 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 so the 416 <laughs> became the 6. Got it. Yeah, yeah it's and easy. the woes... Well, we just got woes. Whoa. We just got woes. <laughs>
0: um, speaking of rolling through the six with your woes, um, you were in a car accident a while back. Yes, sir. Um, tell us about that because that was.
1: Uh, it, it's actually funny that you bring that up right now. The 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 woman, it's hilarious. The woman who? No, the woman who. <laughs> so it, it's this theme of the car accident has been coming up the last couple of days. So a, yesterday was a year since this car accident uh, that really had a huge impact on just the way I do life, um, but. The woman who just drove me here in the Uber, um, she was driving exactly the car that I had the accident in. Oh, wow. And it was just, it was interesting, because maybe I'm just really aware right now, because yesterday was the anniversary, but yeah, we had an epic accident a year ago in upstate New York, uh, driving through wine country, I actually had one of my designers with me, and We had this accident driving full speed down a two-lane highway. A woman drove through a stop sign, T-boned us, knocked us into the next lane, and we had a head-on collision with a semi-trailer. Wow. So we should not have stepped out of that in good form. Uh, But by some miracle, we did.
0: Yeah. Uh, Which is also like at the beginning of your current journey, business-wise.
1: So so it really was influential on everything. So as I said, I had jumped ship from academia in April. Uh, I start. I had just opened the shop in about May was when we opened that pop-up. Uh, I had the accident in July. Fortunately, I was already in the process of building a team of it. So there were some folks in place, but it really, uh, it really made me change the way that I was doing business. Uh, I had fractured my spine, so I was stuck in bed. Wow! Uh, I had my 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 mom and my 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 father come and take care of me. I had a lady coming to my house washing me three times a day. It, nice. it was, you know, at first Probably the best part. Well, at first you're like, I can't believe this is <laughs> happening, but then you get a sense of humor, but you're like, this is right. great, and like yeah. you're lifting up your like leg, like get in there, like go do your <laughs> thing. And I was really like, I had a lot of really good support around me, um, but it definitely motivated. A lot of things like made me realize, you know, I'm doing exactly what I need to be doing. Right. Um, it made me learn to delegate and to rely on other people. Um, one of the first things I did after the accident was hire an assistant who's still with me and she's amazing. She hustles, she hustles the way I hustle, she gets it. And one of the first things she ever said to me, because I never understood how what like how you have an assistant that's like a different. Brain set like when you're just coming out of grad school, you've been doing everything in your life yourself for yourself. Uh, To have somebody who's actually there hustling by your side is amazing. And she told me early on, she's like, "Listen, I work when you work. Tell me what you need." And that. Start, that support yeah. really helped
0: push it's me. genuine it's a, it's a genuine way of phrasing like I'm here to. to I'm here yeah.
1: exactly and then my first two employees ever who were interns before they had come back as full time employees they had just one of them had just finished school and came back as a full time employee and he was the one that was in the accident with me and you know he's got my back too like he's right. exactly the same attitude he's just there and has my back and it's amazing when the team starts building out and you really have this functional core that really has each other covered um and so there's both kind of this like r- real i guess trust and strength that we have in each other but then we were able to start building out from there yeah and as we grew out the team you know, people started getting pulled into this. So when we did our big boost up to I think ten people or twelve people, uh, I took everyone away to the Hamptons for two weeks. So, so we rented a house in actually in North Fork, so just the East End, but we're up in North Fork, in Long Island. By the way, I have
0: my resume here. In my uh, uh,
1: oh yeah, my, my, yeah, my we're my always bag. taking resumes these days. Just,
0: just uh, for the Hampton trip, I just want to be <laughs> an intern during that uh, next, next. But
1: <laughs> it was amazing. You throw a bunch of people and together in a house and we did a bunch of kind of food excursions and we worked on a a project also in New York while we were there too Um, but it was amazing, it got everyone out of their element and really shook them up to to learn who, who one another are and what everybody's capable of and you know, it's really been just growing since then.
0: So, how would like how how would you define your leadership style? Right, like you know, I think you got thrust into this experience where you kind of had to let go, which we all struggle to do until we're forced to. Um, but you know whether it's that, you know, how you say that impacted your personal outlook or even from your upbringing, like looking at everything from a design perspective, even I would imagine the team is a design of yours in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what, how do you define yourself as a, as a leader? Like what, what's your style or, you know, approach?
1: You know, I can only inspire with ideas and an environment. So I look to really empower my team, uh, to do amazing stuff to, to really create. Um, and so that's a challenge that I have is like, what is the formal leadership style? And, you know, it comes up sometimes because it's not fully structured, you know, and that's an environment that people are unfamiliar with and often people become uncomfortable with it. But again, I always will go back to, well, what are our main goals? Are we aligned? or Are we not aligned? Is the work we're doing aligned with what our, greater goals are, right. is it not aligned? Is the work that you as an individual are doing, um, is that work aligned with the greater goals of the business? Yes or no? You know, is that aligned with your own goals as an individual? Right. right? And, w- and we're always checking and touching base. So I'll be back on Monday right now, and I've been away for quite some time, but we're going to do a three-day workshop with just the team. Like I stop all work, and for three days... We look at different areas of the business. So one area is just going to be our internal dynamics, uh, and really like f- hashing out like what's working, what's not working, and let's figure it out. Let's make it happen. Uh, but really on our systems and the way that we interact with one another and th- those pieces. The next area will be really on the strategy piece. You know, right. what are the areas that you know we're we're building towards, um, and we're growing towards, and again checking, touching, touching base again and yeah. saying like is this what we want to be doing uh and then the third day is like what are the opportunities really like what are the opportunities what are the things that you've seen over the last six weeks to eight weeks that you think we should be doing right um and so we do that in a very informal way but i find that creating that environment for my team and for myself allows us to do amazing work
0: yes that's, that's fantastic um and as you as your company has, I mean, you're in, you mentioned New York, Toronto, they're in L.A. now. You've done some stuff in the Middle East. Um, what sorts of at least from a, a food perspective or from your own perspective, uh, what are some universal truths you see as you go out to all these different regions of the world? Because I know uh, to, uh, to some extent you have to design for the culture. Uh, but to another extent, it's like, ah, like these are some some connective tissue and things that we experience.
1: Yeah, everybody understands food. So that's the number one piece, and that's why food is the platform of our studio. Um, doesn't matter where you're from, who you are, how old you are, what you believe in, you get food. Everybody's got to eat, and everybody eats in the way that they eat, um, but they're also so curious when they approach eating in a different way that they've never seen before they've never experienced before and that's really where our opportunity lies is really getting people to reimagine what eating can can be like right and so that doesn't matter where you are, whether you're in Dubai or LA, it doesn't matter.
0: Have you gone into a place? I don't know. It's it's like we have water parks, right? There's water parks in California, but also California's in a drought, <laughs> so there's this is really weird, you know, uh, so,
1: dualistic dynamic that happens. That's a very sensitive for me. That's
0: it, no, it's crazy. It's, it's 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 weird, right? Like you, oh, come to not you know farm for the water experience, <laughs> you're like, but you are going to charge me extra money for taking a shower. Uh, um uh but I, I wonder when you go into these other regions, you know where food there may be food sensitivities right like if you go to I'm gonna make it up, but let's say you go to uh, some place in Africa where there's hunger issues um but then what you're kind creating is this sort of luxury experience like it do you do you experience any sort of um tension?
1: you know what you're absolutely touching on a sensitive uh piece. Really, one of our projects is based in Amman in Jordan. And one of the pieces I struggle when we work in the region is, you know, they have probably the largest refugee situation in the world right now. And I'll be in Abdoon, which is kind of this higher air, higher end neighborhood of Amman, fully knowing that an hour away there's, you know, a half million refugees. Um, and so, yeah, certainly those points exist. Uh, and that's something that we we struggle to, to reconcile with. But at the same time, we also see the work that we do in food is not luxury and high end. We really see it as democratizing. And certainly in a place like America or Canada, where people don't necessarily understand their food environments to the best possible extent. Uh, and they're making food choices that aren't necessarily the best for them, we find that we have the opportunity to get people to think about food, to become more conscious about food, to be more intentful around eating uh, by creating delightful experiences. So not by preaching, not by being patriarchal and telling people, this is what you should do, this is what you shouldn't do, but we create really cool experiences that allow people to think for themselves.
0: We talk a lot about, you know, just with with all our guests, right, and I think most innovators – it, you create those experiences that kind of just get people to see things different, right? And it's kind of like you can't unknow something. So once you have an experience, you go, ah, oh, like some, uh, often you start to connect some dots, right? You go into a situation, oh, th- this this principle that I learned in the food lab kind of applies here. It could be like a, a family personal issue. You're like, oh, this is like, let's just think about things differently in, in business and, and in life. Um, speaking of, of thinking about things differently, there's... Uh the, there's the Wilson supercomputer, right? That's been used for Watson. Watson. Oh, sorry. Well, yeah, yeah. I, Wilson is a friend of mine, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and Castaway is coming on. I think this. I'm making excuses now, uh, nice. <laughs> but, but yes, there's Watson. I wonder, as you as a technologist and you as a, a, a lover of delicious cuisine, um, where does the technology end, uh, and where does like the human instinct on you know the food experience kick in?
1: You know, so. I really believe that we are now at a point where that technology piece is starting to become more seamlessly integrated into our environment. Um, And I think the technologies that are emerging today are going to enable us to experience our food environments in a richer way. Um, You know, an example is Watson, right? Supercomputer Watson. Wilson. Wilson, yeah. We'll go back to Wilson. <laughs> he was the the, the the slower, younger brother yeah, exactly. of He's Watson. Like, hey, guys, um, <laughs> I want to make a food, too. I would
0: like to make a food. Sorry, I'm trying to do a dumb computer voice. It, it worked. It worked. Uh, ish. <laughs> <laughs> <sorry>. Definitely <laughs> on the ish side.
1: Uh, but, yeah, so, you know, we have something like Watson that starts pumping out recipes. And I think Watson first launched in the food area maybe about a couple of years ago right. at South by Southwest, uh, there was a food truck that was just cranking out recipes. Was it really useful? Absolutely not. It was nonsense coming out of a computer that a chef was then translating into recipes, but that was in the build mode. And that's, you know, that's something I have a huge appreciation for. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't exactly what it was being billed as being actually. Um, but it was being tested live to understand, does this make sense in the world, right? And how does it grow? How does it change? And even, you know, I've, I've been connected to the beta versions of Chef Watson for the last while, for the last couple of years. And there was just a new round that was put out, a new uh, version that was put out that is now officially giving you the ability to choose ingredients. It matches ingredients on its own and starts generating recipes on wow. its own. And so that's amazing. Like that can really give you the ability to access spaces that you've never understood before. And just
0: to put it a little, in a little bit more perspective for the audience you know, from what I read it also like it will take into account where you are geographically and what the local you know popular cu- cultural cuisine is and and things like that and t- takes in all this other data is, am I correct?
1: For me? sure so it has the ability to really pull in a lot of different influential data so whether it's like styles of food place um, ingredients and it can really consolidate that down into what is the recipe that represents this um and then gives lots of options and certainly it's something that's going to evolve with time and grow and change but it's already reaching a point where it's doing something useful and that's that's brilliant you know and then on the flip side so fine let's say we're talking about uh technology allowing us to um, access foods You know, you have other technologies. You have uh, folks that are starting to connect businesses and individuals with uh, farms directly, right? right? So that you know exactly where your food is coming from. We have another one called Provender that's based in Toronto, but also they've expanded quite, they're expanding across the US right now that, you know, allows a restaurateur to purchase their ingredients from a specific farm. Right. And the technology of the logistics behind that, like how do you get the right stuff into the truck and move it around? And like it sounds simple, but it's really not simple because the farm is a small operation. The restaurant is a small operation. How do they connect? So you have people that are enabling these things. But then if we go to the far end of the spectrum where we start looking actually people who are changing food. Right, we have amazing things happening right now. We have, uh, you know, Sergey Brin invested heavily in the development of this lab cultured meat project. Right, they had the first uh, cultured hamburger uh, presented. I think it was last year, maybe almost two years ago now. Um, you have a company like Modern Meadows in in Brooklyn that's looking at creating uh, lab grown leather. Right. Right. So, what does it mean when we start moving away from a farm? How traditional do you feel farm? about
0: that? Like, how, like, what's your what's your feeling on growing meat?
1: So there's certainly a need to change the way that we supply our populations with food. That's unquestionable. You know, We were recently sitting on a panel with some pretty major food influencers and one of them came up with this kind of math piece about how much a loaf of bread actually costs. You know, Right now we live in an environment where agriculture is very heavily subsidized and whatnot. Right. A loaf of bread on the shelf should cost you about $14 today. It does not come anywhere near there. It's one hell of a sandwich, but it's a fourteen dollar loaf of That's bread. That's crazy, and yeah. we are not connecting real value to the production costs of these of these products, um, and those are the products that are meant to feed our population, right? And food is so central to you know maintaining social order and like structure and and really kind of keeping things moving along, and it's so primitive and basic. So on that end too, like we have a lot of room where. We need to improve. And so the technologies that are coming out or at least being explored are allowing us to start thinking in that space. So do I think that lab cultured meat is the way that we're gonna go? Absolutely not. I I don't believe that we're gonna figure out how to make that the most sustainable process possible. But what it's doing is it's allowing us, and this is actually similar to how we function in our studio, it allows us to stretch our imagination and push us really far out of our comfort zone. And then start understanding. Okay, well, what are the opportunities to to exist? You know, what are the things that we can actually do?
0: No, like I like thinking about that, especially on the technology side of things, because you know, one of my theories is that we've done a lot of things just because we could do them. The thing allowed us to do it. It was ugly. It was just like, oh, let's see what Mm -hmm. you know. And then suddenly. Years later, it becomes something that's super useful, right? It's just like we spent all this time collecting data from our mobile devices and wearable technology and so on and so forth. Now people are getting hyper-personalized recommendations in real time based on where you are geographically or what your health is at the moment. The fact that our car, like, knows that we're diabetic and we'll measure our heart rate and go like hey wake up or pull over like whatever it is or take your insulin um we you know we didn't know what uh, we we didn't know how, where we would end up right we knew what the possibilities were and and i applaud you just for exploring the possibilities and not necessarily worrying about like a real practical thing because you know that's going to come at some point
1: and that's exactly it you know it's the same thing back when i used to do basic technology research, like applied research in my PhD work, right? What we were doing is exploring what are the fringes. You know, we couldn't say that this is the platform that's going to change everything that we do and, and completely will revolutionize our health environment. But we knew that the ideas that we were exploring would. And we're already seeing that today. We're seeing those things starting to be integrated now into baseline clinical practices and really being implemented where, like, there's at the front end, people – are getting better health care and better health services. Right. And that's very important. That's very important, because that allows us to save the costs on actually delivering health care. Um, but it also allows people to get the health care that they actually need. And so let's take that, and this is really where my food research is going now, is how do I take a lot of those concepts and ideas and start exploring them within the food field? And that's really the the research program that we're starting to pull together is really a a field around personalized food and starting to understand how food affects us as an individual.
0: And do you see like, I don't know, like, do you want to keep your operation as a, you know, a semi-small 16, maybe 25, 30 person team? Or do you see like you have an operation in multiple locations around the world and kind of replicating the same uh, intent and output?
1: That's very much a question that's being considered right now. Right. Um, You know, do we kind of create these pods the way I see them are as pods? And then, you know, you kind of have the right combination of people within a pod that then can create and execute projects on their own, uh, both on the research side, but then say also on the client project side, right? Sure. I love having people work on both sides because it allows them to be in the real world. And then in this like ambiguous like research world and it drags them back and forth to see okay I came up with this thing let's test it in the real world this is what people did okay let's go home and like let's figure it out some more Um, so yeah does that pod get replicated or not that's something that I'm really considering because my ideal situation you know but this is like just if I were the boss of the world, uh, I would be like, okay. Let's take this pod and make it move around the world, right? Right, like let's move it from here to Paris, and then let's go to somewhere in Africa. Let's go to the Middle East. Let's go to Asia. Um, but the way people live their lives doesn't allow for that to happen. You know, I could do that myself, but I can't force all yeah, these people. Can
0: do direct that. twenty other people with.
1: We- <laughs> yeah. So though though I'm shocked, but like I've thrown it out there a couple times, and people are down, but it's just not necessarily sustainable, right? Um. And so where are the scalable pieces? Certainly one of the things we focus on is a lot of our internal project work. So whether it's coming up with our own food concepts um, or our own kind of technologies, I look to build those out and then scale those out and roll them out. So that allows us to scale without scaling the, the core studio. And the goal is eventually for those projects to become kind of the main revenue stream that allows us to be really free in our research. What's Ballroom Marfa? Ballroom Marfa is my hat right now. Uh, <laughs> Ballroom Marfa is a gallery in Marfa, Texas. Um, Marfa, Texas being a really special place. If you haven't been, you should go. Um, it's just a very inspired landscape. Uh, it's become uh, an artist hub that really just has an amazing community about it. Very strongly connected with New York and and uh, L.A. now. But r- was started up by Donald Judd uh, a long time ago, I guess, who was an installation artist, I guess, a sculptor, became a sculptor in the 60s, really focused all his work on sculpture, but uh, took over this town, bought up, I think, something like 20 or 30 buildings around this town, wow. and turned them all into his studios. So all of his legacy of his large scale work still exists there. So you go to his studios, which are like these you know, old uh, military base buildings, and he's created these like large-scale uh, structures within them, and he was really focused on explorations of proportion and understanding how these things could exist, but he did it by actually doing it. Right. Uh, so, really for someone like myself, that's exactly my ethos, so it's an amazing place to be um, and to see how somebody who really did it um, and lived it, uh, Created an environment that allowed that for that to happen. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, the few times I've seen you, I'm like,
1: he's got that. That's a cool
0: hat. Uh, but now I know. I thought it was Marfa Stewart, but um, it's a different.
1: She's closely related. <laughs> yeah, she's, a, she's like she's like a Wilson. She's a, yeah, Wilson a Marfa
0: Marfa Stewart. Uh, so um, the show is called Innovation Crush. What do you see out in the world that you're personally crushing on? You know, could be in your arena, could be completely left field for you.
1: You know what? It's a lot of these kind of more and more seamless uh, integrations of, of tech. Um, there's, again, I'll, I'll always talk about Toronto because I, I love Toronto and I think the that, six. that the six. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the six. I'm serious. Toronto is something else. Uh, and there's a lot of cool stuff happening there. But. Um, I guess uh, someone else from Toronto Ariel Garten she has a company called Muse that they develop right now these kind of headbands that allow us to control the environment around yep. us through our our brain waves right and starting to see how those types of technologies are really going to integrate how are we going to uh, use those types of interfaces with the world around us that for me is unreal like that essentially will allow us to do anything just by thinking about it yeah you know again is the technology there yet today? Absolutely not. But it's out there in the real world. People are using it, and it's allowing for the development of the technology to a space where it will be able to do that, right? or at least get our mindsets there. Um, so I'd say that's one piece in the technology field. And again, I'm always going to harp on like my folks from Toronto, because I, I love the place. But uh, very close friends of mine run a studio in Toronto called Partisans. And they're getting a lot of international recognition right now and really reimagining how we exist within our built spaces. Um, and it's amazing to see a team of, you know, guys who just, they're a small shop, um, but they have a big imagination, and a lot of drive that they can make an impact on the world and the mm-hmm. way they do. Um, and it's really through combining technology, design, and just smart thinking in really redefining what architecture can be.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, there was a uh, there was an event of maybe about I I don't know three weeks or a month ago um, called uh, City Innovate, and it was like a city innovation summit that happened in San Francisco. And a lot of it is just exactly what you're talking about, like how cities are being redesigned because of what we now know based on data, based on just populations living longer. In San Francisco, they've actually run out of office space. So, like, Mm -hmm. the WeWorks of the world and the general – like, all these sort of um, shared office spaces are becoming more and more apparent. But also, like, redesigning how we exist in those spaces because – Is the open floor plan great or is it crappy, right? (laughs) Do I want my own office or do? You know what?
1: And at every level, you know, the environment affects who we are and how we function. And so with the work that I've done throughout my research to today, it's always about this interaction between um, the individual and the environment. So whether it's at the cellular level or it's at the built environment level, right? So, you know, back in the day, I was looking at how. Um, things in the microenvironment could affect stem cells or affect our own cells that might have a disease. Um, and really starting to see how that communication happens from the cellular environment to the cell and how they change one another. Uh, right. And that really scales up to the work that we do today. We start really thinking about the food environment. How are these tangible uh, pieces around us affecting us as individuals in the way that we interact with that realm? And so for me, I have a lot of curiosity as well then into the larger and greater Built environments as yeah. well. You know, how does the infrastructure change? Um, how do changes to the infrastructure affect change in the individual? And how does change in the, invi- in, in the individual, excuse me, affect change within the infrastructure?
0: Where does, where, like, where does your curiosity come from? Because, you know, I think, like, good innovators um, are do exactly that, right? You ask questions, you challenge convention, you know, and... For some, I mentioned Chameleonaire earlier when we were talking, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, he talks about like it, it was kind of in the environment he grew up in. He knew there had to be a better way, and that the way of thinking of there has to be a better way just became his way of doing everything. Um, but. Uh, I don't know. Where do you think that is it? Does it still go back to your parents in the design piece? Or I think
1: it... for sure it goes back to the way I was raised. Uh, you know, I had immigrant parents. I grew up uh, with a single mom who was hustling and working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's very inspiring to watch this woman, you know, go do her thing. And she worked her ass off, but she also was so committed to her kids. and, Again, this actually connects back to the food piece um, and why food is so important to me. You know, She would work, 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 come home at exactly four o'clock when we were home from school and spend two hours with us making dinner, And this woman, like, just so you can get a visual, you know, this is a Russian lady. So she's wearing leopard print, stilettos. Um, (laughs) She's got red lipstick. She's got this big, like, thing of bushy hair happening on. And she's smoking menthol cigarettes (laughs) while watching Young and the Restless. This is all happening. Uh, But every day she would be there to make us dinner. And it was and that was a big piece in our family. It was like that's how we communicated love, and that's how we shared with one another was through dinner uh, and through food. But that same environment was an environment where, you know, my mama would always say, "She, you're doing things for yourself. You don't need to be accountable to anybody really, but yourself." So if you uh, can really learn to to judge yourself accordingly. Then you can do anything, you know. So like, if I came home with 100% on a report card, she's like, "That's great, but like, that's not for me. Right? That's for you, you know." And the reverse too. If you do really poorly, it's like,
0: "It's on you." Yeah, that's on you.
1: But really, she always just encouraged us to explore and really to read, to read, to read, to go do things. You know, I'd be like eight years old being dragged to like the ballet. And I'm like, why am I going to the ballet? And she's like, you got to go to the ballet. And then I turn over and she'd be sleeping in the middle of Giselle. I'm like, what? (laughs) This is unfair. (laughs) I'm like, Giselle's like stabbed and dancing around on the stage. Do
0: as I say, not do as I do. Exactly.
1: But really, I, it was an environment that there were no real rules. There was no real structure. Um, and I always kind of just did my own thing. You know, my older brother would take me to go hang out with his friends and I'd be this little kid that would then just like wander off and do my thing. So maybe a big part of it is just nature. So exploration. Like a, but it's yeah. always been there. It's, it's right. always, I would be getting lost as a kid all the time just because I'd be like, oh, what's over there? And kind of peace out. Um, but again, a lot of it had to do with the environments too. Like my family never really shut us down on anything. But then when I went to college, it was similar. There was a lot of opportunity to explore. Um, and then I give a lot of credit to, you know, my, my summer research supervisor when I was in my undergrad. He really opened up my eyes to what research could be. And he never constrained me. He allowed me to explore. Uh, my master's supervisor, Natalie Tavinsky, was the same thing. She allowed me to open up a whole field of research in her lab that didn't exist right. within her lab. It wasn't even within her specific capacities. And she encouraged it. And then same thing again with my PhD supervisor. So it was really having the right mentorship too that allowed me to continue doing that. and was never shut down. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a piece that really, no matter what you're doing, I've, I've found time and time again that really strong mentorship uh, makes a difference. It really does make a difference. That's fair. Uh,
0: last but not least, complete this phrase for me. Oh, no. No, it's not that bad. Is that, Sean, is is that, see, it's easy. Um, Innovation to me is?
1: Innovation to me is the ability to create without constraint Um, and really being able to push beyond your own imagination but really into a world that uh, doesn't necessarily exist. Right. And that's the place where we really can innovate and create.
0: Do you do you have a, a word of advice for people who need to get outside of a box right because I, I think we all have this capacity of imagination but when whether it's day to day so
1: forget about the box like that's like my number one like I have had explosions on new people in studio who are like well I thought I was really thinking outside the box I'm like where's the box what does it look like explain right. to me where did you find the box please throw the box in the garbage Um Really, you have to let yourself unravel all of the things that have you stuck. You know, when I'm, say, launching a new project with a team, I'm like, okay, forget about materials that exist today, forget about technologies that exist today, forget about the way that we actually do things today. Let go of all those pieces and allow yourself to push as far out as possible and then start there. And slowly, you can start coming backwards. It's always easier to come backwards right. than to push outwards. Um, and, you know, that's whether it's our personal lives. You know, I was in academia. I could have said, oh, but I've done all this work to become a professor. Right. And I. This, no, this, is how you this, do it. this is how you do it. But when I let all those things go, suddenly I was able to say, hey, like it turns out there's actually other opportunities out there. Um, And it was like a full turnaround. My whole life I'd been planning to be a professor. And then one day I'm just like, no. And I was there already. Like, that's the crazy part. But it's really you have to be self-aware and you have to really understand where you're stuck and allow those things to, to disappear.
0: Well, thank you thank for, you uh, for dropping dropping nuggets not, not chicken nuggets I was, I was hoping you would br- actually no bring chicken some food nuggets. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um but no thank you so much for for coming by and like making this happen this is great um where can people find you on the interwebs uh, you can find me on my
1: instagram Irwin adam you can find me at erwinadam.com or you can find our studio at future food studio um whether that's instagram or our website or up in the six Up in the six. (laughs) Everybody, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush. Uh,
0: My name is Chris Denson, and I will talk to you next time. If you like listening to comedy, try watching it on the internet. no need to wait for it anymore because it's here and it's funny and i love you a few days ago brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and three comments thumbs up brooke